welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I want to begin a series this morning that will last maybe three or four weeks, um, and it's designed to um, repristinate the area of our worship. Now, when, when I use that word repristinate, um, the staff, I, I used it a few years ago in a series and got totally mocked by, by the staff um, and, and everything from then on became, oh, we're repristinating it. Um, repristination, it comes from the word pristine, obviously, and in order for a tradition to be worth passing on to another group of people, another generation, it's said that you've got to repristinate it or to make it pristine again, to restore it to its original state or its original condition. G.K. Chesterton once said, if you leave a white fence post alone, it will soon be a black post. If you particularly want it to be white, you must always be painting it again. Briefly, if you want the old white post, you must have a new white post. And this series is designed to repristinate, if you like, to paint up the post of worship. Um, As Chris mentioned earlier, we have a lot of new folk coming in and making Gateway home. And oftentimes, it's, it's kind of, you know, yeah, I, I fit with it, I, I like the music, a bit. but the reality is um, the, the reasons why we do what we do, um, some of those things are, are, are lost in just the, the merging and morphing into a new congregation. So I want to speak to that area for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to do it in a series of... Um, ways. I want to talk about the person of worship. I want to talk about the priority of worship. I want to talk about the pattern of worship, and I want to talk about the power of worship. So it looks like it's going to be four, but uh, see how we go. Uh, I can imagine somebody thinking, oh, come on, you know, the, the first message, the person we worship, surely that can be taken for granted. Surely we, we worship God and you really don't need to talk about the person of worship. But I would want to respond to you that in our pluralistic culture, whenever we use the word God nowadays, we can be all over the map in terms of what that phrase or what that word actually means. Now, I know that there was a time in the West where you could say God, and at least most people would immediately think about the God that we read of in Scripture, the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. But those days are long since gone. And today, God, uh, the word God might evoke all kinds of responses and questions. Is he a he or is he a she? Isn't God in all of us? You know, for those of you who saw um, the film based on Elizabeth Gilbert's work, Eat, Pray, Love, you know, she, she spoke about honoring the divinity that resides within and worshiping at the feet of the God within. And she didn't talk about the Holy Spirit within. She was talking about the fact that we're, we're all God. Isn't God in everything? The trees, the, the, the creation, you know, the, the idea of pantheism. Maybe God's a force and you're a Jedi. Or maybe just the whole thing is a myth, a myth and a load of meaningless mumble. Even if we do agree that God is a person, we might not agree on what kind of person he or she is. Is he or she kind or cruel? Is he, and I'm not going to do he or she all through this, so 
please forgive me, but is he involved in my life or is he somewhat distant? Is he transcendent or imminent? Is he strict and uptight like the fundamentalist preacher or is he free and easygoing like a good educated progressive? Now how you answer that question, what is God like, is far more important than you know. Who God is and what we believe about him has profound implications for our lives. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, the reason that Tozer can make such a bold claim is the awareness that we become like what we worship. Whatever it is that we worship, we begin to resemble. What we revere, we ultimately resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. If you imagine that God is homophobic, racist, and mad at the world, then that distorted image of him will shape you into a religious bigot who is, wait for it, homophobic, racist, and mad at the world. If you believe that God is a liberal, left-leaning, LGBTQ-affirming progressive, then guess what you will become? It seems that we end up with a God who looks an awful lot like us. I heard a New Testament professor who, uh, of a New Testament professor who started every semester with two surveys. First of all, he surveyed his students, his, the people in his class, what they liked, what they disliked, what they believed, and so on. And then he used the same set of questions and applied them to Jesus. And he said, 90% of the time, the answers were exactly the same. Here's how you know you have a God created in your image. He agrees with you on everything. He hates the people that you hate. He votes for the person or the party that you voted for. He's passionate about the things that you're passionate about. If you're hung up on sexuality, then so is he. If you are open and elastic about sexuality, then so is he. And this God never surprises you and never contradicts you. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that God is also a figment of your imagination. It seems that sometimes our theology is a mirror of our soul. Now, you might just be thinking, well, Don, I don't do theology. I'm just not really into it. Of course you are, and of course you do. We all have theology in the same way that we all have philosophy. To some degree, we are all philosophers and theologians, either by design or by default. We have thoughts and opinions and convictions about God, and on those we theologize and philosophize. Now, the big problem with our theology is that much of what we think about God is simply wrong. Maybe not all wrong, but wrong enough to mess us up quite badly. What we think and feel about God is often not an accurate picture of what he's actually like. Even Jesus had to readjust the thinking of many religious people about what God was like. And he would say things like, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. When you come to theology, I think a really good and humbling starting place is the realization that unaided and unschooled, we don't have a clue what God is like, but we can learn. And in order to learn, we have to go to the source. Without going to the source, without revelation, we end up with sometimes erroneous, untrue, sometimes goofy, and more insidiously, sometimes toxic ideas about what God is like. Now, our conviction is that the starting place where you can learn about what God is like is, of course, the Scriptures. 
And at times, through the scriptures, there are these climactic moments where, as it were, a door opens and we get a compelling glimpse, we call it a revelation, of what God is really like. And as you read the scriptures, you'll often find that they occur on mountains. Moses on Mount Sinai, Jesus with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and perhaps ultimately Jesus on Mount Calvary. I want to look with you this morning as we consider the person that we worship at one of these compelling moments, and it occurs in Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus 33 and 34, we have Moses up a mountain, and he he prays a prayer. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And what he's asking is, can I really see what you're like? I would really like to know you. And God responds, and it says, The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Now, in this compelling moment, immediately we see God has a name. Now, this is a watershed moment. And what follows is one of the places where God describes himself and essentially says, This is what I'm like. This is God's self-disclosure, if you like, his press release to the world. And this is what he says and does. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children's children for, this, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And then it says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. That passage that I just read you is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. That passage occurs again and again. And I've listed up on the screen, just a number of places where it is clearly alluding to what God has said to Moses in Exodus 34. And that really doesn't include hundreds of times where phrases from this revelation occur throughout the scriptures. This this self-revelation of God, when God pulls back the curtains and says, this is what I'm like, is perhaps surprising, at least to us Westerners, because it isn't what we expect. It isn't what we would read in books on systematic theology, where God is described often in terms of categories of of Western philosophy, like he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. So he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere at once. Now, those things are true, and, and I believe them, but it isn't what God chooses in this moment to actually describe himself. Apparently to God, these things, at least to him anyway, aren't the most important things. He starts by proclaiming his name, and he talks about what we would call his character. And I think this makes sense when you stop and consider it. When, when you start with the omnis, you know, the omnipresent, omniscient, and the other ones, it's a bit like someone asking me perhaps what Karen is like, and, and, I, and I give facts about her. I give her age, which probably isn't a good place to start, but, but um, I, I tell you her height, her hair color, her Irish ancestry, all of which, of course, is true. But at some point in time, you might want to stop me and say, yeah, no, no, but what's she like? 
Is she social or shy? Is she a laid-back person or a type A personality? What's she, what's she passionate about? What made you fall in love with her in the first place? What makes her well? What makes her her? Exodus 34 isn't a treatise on the attributes of God. It's a description of what he's like. And as you read it, it's good news because he's better than we might have hoped for. And he begins the self-revelation by proclaiming his name. And I think most of you know in ancient cultures uh, and in ancient writings, a name was more than simply a label you used to make a dinner reservation or to fill out a tax return. A name is about identity. It's about destiny. Your name is considered a personal revelation of actually who you are. A name is an autobiography in one word. And in this self-disclosure, God repeats again and again, the Lord. I am the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, is how, is how most English versions render it. Actually, in the Hebrew, it renders Yahweh, Yahweh. You know, in the modern world, if you're writing a book or a blog post or an email and you want to emphasize a point, you might italicize it, you might underline it, you might put it in bold capitals. But in the ancient world, none of those things are available to you. What you do is you repeat it. So where you find a name repeated, it's something to take notice of. Yahweh, Yahweh. Listen, God's name isn't God. It's Yahweh. Karen's name isn't woman or wife, it's Karen. She is a woman and she is my wife, but they aren't her name. Her name is Karen. God, God's name is Yahweh. Now, just if I can put brackets around this just for a moment, I'm not trying to get tangled up in technicalities and get all legalistic and suggest to you that if you pray, oh God, oh God, oh God, he won't, he'll turn his back and say, that's not my name. In the same way that if I said to Karen, hey woman, I might get a slap around the ears from an Irish lass. <laughs> God's not hung up. But this isn't his name. His name is Yahweh. And it's actually, in Exodus 34, it's not the first time that God revealed this name to Moses. You'll remember in Exodus 3 where, God in, where Moses encountered God in the burning bush. And Moses asks, Mashimo, what is your name? Who are you? And the famous reply comes, I am that I am. I don't know about you, but I think if I was Moses, I would have been thinking, is that an answer? I mean, that's a bit mysterious. That's not really all that helpful. And we'll unpack it in just a moment. But one of the nuances of I am who I am or whatever I am, I will be, is that whatever God is saying that he is, he is consistently, 24-7. He's always that way. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity, or I hope you haven't actually, but, but someone you thought you knew really well, and you trusted them deeply, and then comes a phone call, or a knock at the door, or an email, and you discover the duplicity, you discover the betrayal, you discover, you discover the double life hidden in the shadows. Your friend perhaps is wanted by the police, or your spouse has cheated, or your child was lying. One of the things that this passage tells us is that's never going to happen with God. It is never going to happen. He is true to his character always. Whatever he is, he will be. But it's in Exodus 34 where this curtain is drawn back and we get a revelation of who this person really is. 
Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate or merciful and gracious. That, that word compassionate or merciful is his baseline emotion toward you. And in the Hebrew, it has the idea of the feelings that a mother has for her infant child, that deep, visceral, motherly love that a mother has for a child. Mercy is how he feels toward you. Gracious is how he acts. Mercy is the feeling word. Gracious is the action word. This is how he acts and feels on your behalf. Then it goes on to say, he's long-suffering or he's slow to anger. In the Hebrew, it literally means he's long of nostrils. True. When you think of anger, sometimes you can picture a person's nostrils flaring out, flaring out as they verbally unload. And the basic idea here is that while it is possible to make him angry, you really have to work hard at it. He isn't like the other ancient gods who were edgy and fickle and volatile and unpredictable. One Jewish Targum translates this, one who makes anger distant but brings compassion near. You, you know, a lot of postmodern writers, and I'm sure that you've read some of them, have abandoned the idea that God gets angry at all. And they'll say something like, it's an unwelcome hangover from a pre-modern superstitious age. But I think you can only do that if you are seeking to remake God in your image, as we talked about at the beginning. The scripture talks about God's wrath over 600 times. Listen, he is capable of anger. However, he is not easily angered. He isn't fickle, volatile. You don't go, our father, he goes, what? He doesn't do that. He abounds in love and faithfulness or goodness and truth. Uh, in English, that's a literary device we call a hendiadus. Where, where you take two nouns and you kind of smash them together to try and help them define this concept, try and help you define this concept. Two words rather than one to try and capture the meaning of an idea. For example, we say nice and warm, or law and order, or board and lodging. The one word doesn't quite get it, you need the two, and even then it's beyond that concept. This idea of uh, goodness and truth or loving faithfulness is, is that idea. You try and put these two words together, but even then it doesn't quite capture the idea. One scholar says God's love is his faithfulness and his faithfulness is his love. The basic idea, as I said before, is the complete reliability of this person. He will never let you down. His covenant loyalty will never fail. His loving kindness means that he is one who always maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness. And then it goes on and says, and yet, or if you like, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, love the first part, this part jars for most of us, doesn't it? How does that work? Now, what's saying here is that he's a God of justice. And, and that shouldn't jar us because we all want justice, at least as it applies to other people anyway. But, but we want justice, we crave for it, we, we ache in our bones for justice. We want God to be just. And he is. 
I guess it's not the idea that God is just, but the second idea that really bothers us in this self-revelation, the idea that sin gets visited on children of the sinner to the third and fourth generation. That seems manifestly unfair to us. And I don't have time to unpack this in any kind of detail, even if I did understand it, which, to be truthful, is all a little bit of mystery there. But let me simply say, this cannot just mean that God gets so ticked at Uncle Bob's tax evasion that he says, I'm going to get your kids for this. Because the Torah goes on to say in other places that um, there is an express ban on punishing children for the sins of their parents. For example, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, parents shall not be put to death for the children. Sorry, parents shall not be put to death for the children, and vice versa. Ezekiel says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The children or the child shall not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So whatever visiting the sin being visited on, on children mean, it doesn't mean that God's saying, I'm going to get your kids for this. Because that expressly is banned in the Torah and in other places. One of the things I would want to say is I, I suspect that this is a, a divine warning. Where he is saying, listen, I, Yahweh, am forgiving, but I want you to know sin isn't. Sin isn't forgiving. And parental failure can have catastrophic effects on the children. Sociologists will tell you that. Psychologists will tell you that. Social workers will tell you that. And you don't need any of them to tell you that because you know that. And some of you sitting here this morning are the victims of parental neglect and abuse and failure. And you know how that shapes you and how that failure goes down the line. Rather than saying, I think God does that, one of the things that I think God does do is he breaks that pattern. In his redeeming grace, he comes in to forgive and to change it. But the reality is sin ruins families. That passage in, in Exodus 34 is one of the most marvelous revelations of the character and the name of the person that we're called to worship. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, Don, yeah, that's fine. But I, I thought we worship Jesus. Where, where does he fit into this Yahweh thing that, that is revealed in Exodus 34. Well, we do worship Jesus, and we worship Jesus for very good reason. Let me briefly show you why. In John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus is praying, and he says to the Father, I have manifested your name whom you give, whom you, to, the, to the ones that you have given me out of the world. I have manifested your name. Now think about Exodus 34, the name, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. He's got a name. And here, Jesus is saying, I have revealed that name to the men that you have given me. In verse 26, I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it. Now, the message translation says, I have spelled out your character in detail to the men and the woman that you gave me. In verse 26, I have made known your very being to them. How could Jesus do this? Well, the reason is that he is Yahweh. He is that God in the flesh come to his people. Yahweh became a human being in Jesus. You, you think about the I am statements of John's gospel, culminating ultimately in that passage in John chapter 8 where he says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. 
Now, there's not a person, there's not a Jew in that crowd who isn't now thinking of the burning bush where Moses says, Marshimon, what's your name? Who are you? And he says, I am who I am. And here's this carpenter from Nazareth now standing before this group of people saying, before Abraham existed, I am. And you can't mistake that. They took up stones to stone him because they understood the implications of that. You know, when we sing as we've done over the years in various kinds of songs, Jesus is Lord, he is Lord. Most of us tend to imagine that we're singing Jesus is the boss, he's, he's over all. But remember the Old Testament? He proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord. It was Yahweh, Yahweh. Well, when the Greek translators came to translate the Hebrew into Greek, they didn't know how to translate Yahweh, so they used the word Kyrios, which is the word Lord. So when we came over, come over and say, Jesus is Lord, effectively, we are saying Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Everything that was revealed about the character of God in that encounter in Exodus 34, Jesus exhibits the loving kindness, the graciousness, the mercy, the forgiveness, the justice, and on occasion, the anger. Jesus is a revelation of his Father. You know, John 1.18, no man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has done an exegesis on him. He's brought him out in the open. He showed us what he's like because he's Yahweh in the flesh. When we come to worship, one of the passages that has so motivated me to worship over the years is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, where it talks about Jesus, and it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. What a passage. We, we could take probably the next year and a bit to try and unpack the meaning of that. When, when it comes, by the way, to, to the word firstborn, which it uses, this passage is about two creations, the old creation, the new creation. It says Jesus is firstborn over both of them. And the word firstborn, don't, don't be mistaken. It doesn't mean the first one created by God is, for example, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and the Aryan believers of the first century said it meant. It doesn't mean that. It's not talking about he was created first. It simply is a word of preeminence. In the, in the ancient patriarchal system, it was the firstborn who had preeminence over all. And it means the one who has the supreme place. He wasn't created in the beginning. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He has always been. What Paul says here in Colossians agrees with John. Jesus is prior to creation. He is before all things, Paul says. Listen, before he made stools as a carpenter, he made stars. Before he made plows, he made planets. Before he made tables, he made the trees from which the tables were later made. He made all things. He was prior to creation. He was the power behind creation. All things were made by him. John says, without him was nothing made that was made. 
And Hebrews says, by this son, God created the worlds in the beginning. All things were made by him. He was prior to creation. He's the power of creation. He's the purpose of creation. It was made in him, by him, for him. Ephesians puts it this way in the J.B. Phillips. He purposes, God purposes in his sovereign will that all human history will be consummated in Christ, that everything that exists in heaven and earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him. Romans 11.36 in the New English Bible says he's the source, the guide, and the goal, the teleos, of all things. So he's prior to creation, he's the power of creation, he's the purpose of creation, he's the preserver of creation. It all holds together in him, Colossians says. In him, everything, one translation says, coheres. It's coherent because of him. Without him, things are incoherent. But in him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. You know, one of the startling things, one of the startling discoveries in the whole incredible realm of quantum physics is the reality that the things that we thought are solid are, in fact, largely vacuous space. We imagine solid as, we say. Well, actually, it's not. The solidity of iron, for example, is 99.9999% vacuous space. It's made to feel solid by the ethereal fields of force that have no material reality at all. Now, I know you're thinking, what? (laughs) As I thought, what? But if you could scale up the center of a nucleus of an atom and make it a diameter of four inches, then they tell us that the surrounding electron cloud would extend out to four miles away and everything in between is vacuous space. So how does it hold together? Well, scientists are struggling with that question and they think it's held together by, wait for it, gluons. (laughs) These mysterious things that hold the world together. Now, I don't want to drop into God of the gaps thinking, but I want to tell you at the bottom of the gluons is the word of his power, which holds it all together. We haven't even begun to plumb the depths of what Paul is talking about in this passage of Colossians. He goes on to talk about the new creation. As he was prior to the old creation, the power behind it, the the purpose of it, and the preserver of it, when it comes to the new creation, he's the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent one over the new creation that God is going to have. And you know what? The only possible response to that kind of revelation is worship. In Exodus 34, God passed by and said, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate, gracious, tender, forgiving, merciful to thousands of generations, just and true. And Moses fell and worshipped. So should we. So should we. This is the person that we worship. Worship is not just a performance that we go through before we get to other things in our service. Worship is the lifting up of this person, the one that has redeemed us in mercy and kindness and grace, the one who holds everything together by the word of his power, the one who is the purpose of all that you see, of all that has been, of all that will be. 
for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.